thanks for being here. Uh, this is a weird kind of Sunday for us. I, I, I was sitting here about 20 minutes ago just kind of thinking, you know what, we probably should have had this at my house. So I'm thankful for all you visitors who came and showed up and, and filled things up just a little bit. I promise you that next week should be back to normal, barring any complications. But uh, again, it's good to see your faces, and I'm glad you're here. I want to start out by posing a question to you. What is it going to take for you to believe? You ever think about that? What is it really going to take for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Right? Is it going to take some sort of miracle, some sort of experience, some sort of happening in your life? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever asked someone else that? Right? Maybe you haven't thought about that yourself, but maybe you've kind of wondered as you've engaged with someone who doesn't know Jesus, what is it, what's it going to take for them to believe? So far as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've seen a long list of things that just won't work. Right? We've seen the moral example of Jesus. That doesn't produce faith in anyone. We've seen and experienced Jesus' compassion over and over and over again, yet no one believed. We've seen Jesus perform miracles. And even those whom He healed directly, most of them refused to believe. Jesus has, has taught with such authority and such power that it left people marveling, it left them amazed, but yet people still, they don't come to Christ, they still don't believe. And what we're going to see even today is that when Jesus miraculously fills the bellies of a multitude, they still refuse to believe. It's amazing. Not Jesus' moral example or His compassion, not His message or His miracles, not even the fact that Jesus would fill your belly. And get this, not even that, that you might know and be with Jesus. Because we see that His disciples haven't got it yet. None of that has led to true faith in Christ. So again, I ask this question, what is it going to take for you to believe if it didn't work for them, what makes you think it's going to work for us? The only way that we can come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ is if the Holy Spirit works through the Word to open our eyes, to give us understanding, to see who Jesus really is. This is what everything comes down to. It's who is Jesus. Today we're looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, and that's page um, 841 and 842 in the Bibles there in the chairs if you need to look at it. Um, if you've been around church at all, this is a really familiar passage. Um, it's, it's one of, uh, of the few times, well, it's one of two miracles that appears in all four Gospels, right? There's this one, the feeding of the 5,000, and then there's the resurrection. Those are the only two miracles that show up in all four Gospel accounts. So it's pretty important. I mean, if, you've been, if you grew up around church like I did, then you've heard a lot of, you've read children's books about this. You've, you've heard many Bible studies or many stories about this. Sermons are preached on this. And many people have argued and debated and questioned this account. Could this possibly be true? And so, it, it's been all over the place. But it seems like, more often than not, when people come to this text, they get caught up in all the wrong things. You know, they focus on the number of loaves and the number of fish. They focus on how large this crowd was. They focus on Jesus' compassion or the fact that he's setting a moral example that, that sort of 
incites people to just be really benevolent and share what they had. Or, or they focus on the fact that here's this little boy and he's so sacrificial. Look at the way he gives his food for, for all these people and, and what Jesus does with, with his act of charity, his act of kindness. Well, that's missing the point entirely. Mark is concerned about one thing and one thing alone. He's, he's trying to tell us who Jesus is. And he doesn't just want to say it to us. He wants to show it to us. And so this event that we see here in the life of Jesus is meant to display. It's meant to convey. It's meant to show us who Jesus really is. And we learn three things from this text. We learn that Jesus is the Lord who gives rest. We learn that Jesus is the shepherd who is compassionate. And we learn that Jesus is the creator who provides. So let's read Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And again, that's pages 841 and 842 in the Bibles there in the chairs. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had, had done and taught. And, and He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send, away, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they went out and they found... Um, and when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in, in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish among them all. And they ate and were satisfied and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. By this time in Jesus' ministry, he's been on the scene for over a year. He's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been casting out demons. There's word going around that, that he even calmed the storm and he raised this little girl from the dead. Right? He's been... Primarily in this little region of Galilee. Now to put things in perspective, Galilee is, is only 50 miles by 25 miles. So it's just a little bit bigger than Champaign County that we live in. And so if you think about it, Jesus has been ministering for over a year, doing all these things, all these signs and wonders, all these, these sermons, all this teaching in this very little geographic area. So by now, everybody's heard of him. More than likely, everyone's heard his message. People have come from near and far. We, we learned back in chapter 3 that people came from as far as 120 miles away up to here and see Jesus, to see what he's going to do. Right? So he's not left himself without a witness. 
And this is basically his last hurrah there in Galilee. He's now he's getting ready to depart from Galilee and to go into other regions. But before he does, he sends out his twelve to go through the villages, teaching and casting out demons and healing people and coming back. And then he's going to perform this miracle, this largest miracle, this most public miracle, as that one last final, hey, this is what I'm about, and this is how I'm going to prove that this is who I am. Right? And it's in this context that we learn this first truth from verses 30 through 32, that Jesus is the Lord who gives rest. I mean, look again at the text. It says, the apostles, they returned from being sent out by Jesus to, to teach and to heal, and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, I'm not going to belabor this too much because I know that I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. But I just want to reiterate and kind of focus our attention on the fact that Jesus is the Lord who gives rest. And we see this in two ways. We see his authority as Lord in that he's the one who sent out the disciples. And we see the rest that he gives and he's the, he is the one who has the ability to refresh them. These are important keys that we don't want to miss. Jesus' authority as Lord is seen in, in their sending. I mean, Jesus had taught them. He's trained them. He's appointed them. He's called them to be His disciples and now His apostles. It's in His authority that they've been sent out two by two to preach His message and to heal and to cast out demons by His power. I mean, it should be clear that everything here that happens is done by Him, according to Him, because of Him, because He is the Lord. He is the authority. He is the one that sent them out. They didn't go on their own. They didn't go in their own power and their own ability. They didn't heal because they somehow had that inside themselves or they could claim it for themselves, but because Jesus was the one who equipped and supplied and trained and called and sent them out. So everything about their mission is Jesus. It's His mission. It's His message. It's His power. It's His grace. It's His ability. And it's His rest to give to them. All of it is a direct result of His authority as Lord. And not only did He send them out on His mission by His own authority, warning them of the rejection and the hardship that they would face, Jesus is also the Lord who provides refreshment for their souls. I mean, here they they come back and they're all pumped about what has just happened. They're taught, they've done these miracles, you know, Jesus has clearly worked through them. They're all excited about it and they're just ready to go. They're amped, you know. And Jesus says, hey, wait a second, what you need is you need to rest. We need to get away by ourselves to this desolate place and rest for a while. Jesus knows really what they need. I mean, you ever get pumped up about something? You're like, there's no way I'm sleeping, right? I'm not going to sleep at all. And then Jesus said, no, you need rest. And then boom. And he's not talking about taking a nap here, right? As helpful as that would be. Jesus needs to get them alone with him. He is their rest. He is their nourishment. He is the, their, the sustainer of their souls. He is what they truly need. Yeah, a nap would be great to recharge their batteries, but what they really, really need, what their souls really need, is nourishment from Jesus. They need to be with Jesus. It's, it's humbling and it's amazing to think that, that we're not alone in, in this call that Jesus gives us, right? I mean, think about everything that he gave to them, right? He, he's the one that called them, but he's also the one that trained and equipped them. 
He's the one that gave them his message that they are to proclaim. He showed them how to do it. He sent them out together so that they're not alone. He's the one who gave them gave them grace and ever-present power so that everything they did was in his strength, not their own. And even when they get tired, even when they get weary and they come back, even if it's good or it's bad, it doesn't matter. He's there to give them rest. He's there to give them hope so that the call is not overwhelming. They're not beat down by the mission because it's all Him. It's His. They go in His strength. His sustenance. And they're able to be recharged, replenished by Him. This applies in that one of the ways that we fail to believe Jesus is that we fail to believe that He is the one who calls and equips us with all we need to complete His mission. Right? We fail to embrace that call to mission because either, either we're afraid, you know, we just don't know that, that we can do it on our own or we're worried about the task, or maybe we're trying to do it in our own strength and we just exhaust ourselves. And so we don't fully embrace that call to mission because we don't recognize that Jesus has promised to give everything we possibly need to fulfill His purposes. We're never alone in it. He is the Lord who gives rest. He is the authority and has the right to command mission. He is the teacher who trains us how to do it. He is the Lord who gives ever-present power to complete His purposes. And He is the King who comforts who renews, who gives us rest so that we might not grow weary in fulfilling that call. You know, when we fail in mission, it's because we're not trusting that Jesus is the Lord who gives rest. The second truth that we must embrace about Jesus is that He is the shepherd who is compassionate. Jesus is, is a compassionate shepherd both to the crowd and to the disciples, and it looks a little bit different. We see his kindness first expressed to the crowd in verses 33 and 34. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and he and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So apparently, this rest that he was attempting to give the disciples didn't last all too long. There they go. They get in the boat and somebody must have let it slip. Hey, we're going out to the desolate place, guys. All right. And so there they are. They're in this boat and they're headed. And maybe maybe the wind was just like against them the entire way. But but it says that this, all these people are running ahead of them and they beat them to the place. Now, I don't think that these people are like wicked fast like Usain Bolt, you know. So something's going on. Maybe the disciples got lost. I'm not really sure. But but nevertheless, they come ashore and it wasn't just like a few guys. Jesus says that a large crowd was there. This huge crowd was there waiting on them. And Jesus sees them and he has compassion on them. This crowd, we know from verse 44, is comprised of at least 5,000 men. Now, if you look at Matthew's account, he adds something extra. He says, besides women and children. So that means that this crowd could be 10,000. It could be 20,000. It could be 25,000. It's 5,000 plus, because there's clearly 5,000 men there. It kind of makes me wonder, what on earth this crowd is doing out there? You know, like... 
I mean, are, are they that fanatical about Jesus and seeing all that he's, he's said and done that they're, they're running out there and getting ahead and there's all these people? Or were they out there for a different purpose? Some people, um, some commentators, some scholars, they, they think that there was another purpose behind this. They were more than likely near the region of Magdala, which is Herod's main hangout. And there's 5,000 men, right? Every gospel account makes sure to add that there are 5,000 men. Now, given the region, given the political climate, given the history behind all this, and given the fact that there's 5,000 men, leads many to believe that this was a potential political rebellion getting ready to take place. And after all, John says in his account, in chapter 6, verse 15, that these people were ready to take Jesus and make him their king by force, which means that they want to replace their current king, Herod, and overthrow the Roman rule in the process. So whether that's the reality of what's going on or not, we know that there's at least 5,000 plus people there that are men. But Jesus, when he sees the crowd, he has compassion on them. He, he cares for them. He's concerned about them. He, he has empathy for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you, when we hear this account, I mean, what, what comes through your mind? What do you think of? I mean, you think about... Oh, Jesus is so compassionate towards these lost little sheep. I mean, it's kind of like you, you, you develop in your mind sort of this cutesy image of little Bo Peep who's lost her sheep and she's kind of gathered them in together. And Oh, look at the sweetness. Oh, look at the compassion. Look at the care. Look at how he loves these lost sheep and brings them together. Look at his staff. Look at his pretty pink bows. You know, like maybe all but that last bow part. But, but that's not what he's trying to convey at all. All right? I mean, sure, Jesus has compassion. But the shepherd imagery is really important in the Bible. If you look throughout redemptive history, if you look throughout Scripture, what you see is that, that shepherds are meant to represent God. They are the leaders. They are the elders. They are the priests. They are the kings of Israel who have an important task. They are to use their position, whatever that is, for the good of God's flock, for the good of God's people. They are to be representatives of God to protect God's people, to provide for God's people, to guide and to lead God's people. And we see from the Old Testament that the ultimate shepherd is God Himself. Kind of gets rid of that whole cutesy little little bit of peep image, or it should, right? We're talking about a leader here. He says that there's sheep without a leader. But what happens uh, throughout the course of history, what we see time and time again, if you read the Old Testament, you see that these people who are supposed to be God's shepherds, who are supposed to be God's representative, acting upon His behalf to care for the flock, to protect the flock, to provide for the flock, to guide and lead God's flock, instead they end up using it on themselves. They're wicked shepherds. They're evil shepherds. They act more like wolves than they do shepherds. They're killing, they're harming, they're maiming, they're scattering God's sheep. They're using their positions for themselves rather than for the glory of God and the good of others. I mean, we saw that two weeks ago with Herod. Herod is a prime representative. I mean, there's a contrast that's going on there between Herod and Jesus. That Herod used his position as a tyrant and squandered all that, that he had been given for pleasures of this world and was even willing to kill God's people and God's prophets to keep what he had. Contrast that with Jesus. 
the compassionate shepherd. He does exactly the opposite. Uh, I'd encourage you to go and read Ezekiel 34. We won't take time to look at it here, but Ezekiel 34 is important because it's God's condemnation against these wicked shepherds. Right? And what you see is that, that he's just basically judging them because they've used, they've squandered that position upon themselves. They are, they are hurting the flock, they're killing the flock, they're feeding off of the flock, they're scattering the flock rather than doing what they're called to do. But at the end of that chapter is really key because God promises that he himself will come and he will be their shepherd. He will lead them. He will guide them. And he will do it through his servant David. Son of David. That should ring a few bells. So Mark is, is here and he's contrasting these wicked shepherds with the compassionate shepherd Jesus. Herod uses his position on himself. You know, he's killing, he's maiming, he's feeding the sheep, forcing God's flock out into the wilderness. But Jesus is a compassionate servant who is feeding God's sheep, who is healing, who is giving life, who actually goes out into the wilderness to bring in God's flock, to bring in God's true people. He really fulfills Ezekiel 34. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And how does Jesus fulfill this according to this passage? How, how does this compassionate shepherd end up caring for his flock and restoring his flock and bringing them in, he immediately sits them down and feeds them, right? Is that what the text says? Oh, no, no, he heals them, right? No, verse 34 says that he teaches them. He taught them many things. And he does it until the day goes, until the hour becomes late. He spends all of his time teaching them, right? Luke tells us, he adds, that, that Jesus is there teaching about the kingdom of God of what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And we know from the beginning of Mark that that's basically Jesus saying, listen, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he's preaching the gospel to them. He's teaching them until it becomes late. So Jesus' first and ultimate priority is to teach the people how they might have the kingdom of God, which they could only do through repenting of their sin and believing in Him. This compassionate shepherd is in the wilderness and he's leading God's flock to God's pasture, the kingdom of God. So that's how he interacts with his, the crowd. But Jesus is also a compassionate shepherd towards his disciples. Look again at verses 35 through 40. It says, And when it grew late, his disciples came and said to him, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. So here they are in this desolate place, also translated wilderness or desert. Okay, They've been there all day now and it's getting late. And the disciples, they're, they're tired. 
they're hungry. It said before in, in, in verses 30 through 32 that some of them didn't even have time, leisure to eat, right? They've been there all day, and they're still waiting on that hope of rest that Jesus had promised them. And so they, they, they immediately say, hey, Jesus, man, look at the clock. Man, it's dark, all right? We need to let these people go. We need to get something to eat. They need to go and, and, and get out there. They just need to go, right? And they're not just asking Jesus. They're demanding it of Jesus. They're saying, listen, the hour's gone. Let's get him out of here. Right? And so he, he just turns and he responds to him. Let's say, okay, you, you feed him. Right? And they're like, they're like, what? What are you talking about? We are in the wilderness. Do you know the McDonald's in the wilderness? No. There are no bakeries. There are no shops. There's nothing to give people to eat out here. And even if there was, listen, it's going to take 200 days wages from each of us to be able to feed this huge crowd. 200 days wages. We have like 64 cents, right? We can't even buy from the dollar menu. And so Jesus tells them to, to go and find out what the people have. He says, go out and see what's there. And he doesn't mean go back to the boat and see what you have in your stuff. He's saying go out to this 5,000 plus people. And what they come back with are five crackers and two sardines. I mean, seriously, these are flat, it's flat bread. It's, this is not like a loaf of bread, right? This is like, this is not even a pita, right? It's like dry and crackly, and these, these are dried fish, so they're small. You know, this, this is not a lot of food. And so Jesus commands the people to sit down in the green grass. Interesting detail in light of the fact that they are in the wilderness, potentially the desert. And uh, the people pile up in these groups of 50s and 100s. And so they're out there in this desolate place. Again, wilderness. Again, Desert. They're there because they followed a shepherd, right? His disciples are complaining. They're grumbling. They're, they're making demands of their leader. Everybody is hungry. And food is an impossibility. Does this sound familiar at all? Does this echo of anything that maybe you read about in the Old Testament? Right? Say, in the book of Exodus. Right? <clears throat> the Old Testament allusions and echoes are, are thick here. When Jesus says they are like sheep without shepherds, he's quoting from Numbers 27, 17, which took place during the Exodus. Mark wants our minds to be drawn back to the Old Testament. He wants us to see how God provided in those situations and to see that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of all that had happened back then. Jesus is the compassionate shepherd to His disciples in giving them an opportunity to see this. He's giving them a chance to see it. He's quoting from the Old Testament, he's alluding and, and echoing all these things that take place and they're near to him and they ought to be able to see it. This is the rest that Jesus provides them. He's not talking about taking a nap. He's saying, listen, your souls ought to take rest in the fact of who I am. And look at what I'm doing. And what does that remind you of? It reminds you of the Exodus. This is a new Exodus. And the person that's here that's with you is greater than Moses. I am the greater Moses. 
Like Moses, Jesus was leading a blind and complaining shepherdless people in the wilderness. Moses led them to the promised land, but Jesus is teaching them how they might have the kingdom of God. The people are hungry, and like the Israelites of old, but the food that Jesus will provide is better than manna and quail because he offers the promise of living water and the bread of life. The disciples have this front row seat to see this new exodus unfold. Unfortunately, they're only looking at their immediate situation. Those echoes are just bouncing off of their ears like they do some cavern somewhere. They, they, they can't see the illusions. They're so caught up in their own hunger. They're so caught up in their own agendas and their own purposes. And in the impossibility of the situation, they think to themselves, this can't possibly be the case. Right? They're only looking at what has happened naturally. They're looking at it through natural minds. Thinking about physical rest, thinking about physical food, thinking about money and thinking about their situation, the impossibility and, and how that can't happen naturally. They don't see the illusions. They don't hear the echoes. They don't get that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. They're missing it. They don't trust in his purposes. They don't get that he is their rest, their nourishment, their provision and their power. They see a shepherd, yes, but only a human one. And though he is compassionate, they don't believe that he can do anything about their circumstances. Do you get what Mark is telling us here? Do you see how significant this is? He's basically saying, hey, all that stuff in the Old Testament pointed to Christ, and Christ is the greater thing. And you need to place your trust in him as your compassionate shepherd. This is, I'm, I'm not just saying this, this has real effects. This ought to challenge you and change your lives. These are not just words. These are not just concepts. This is meant to affect the impossible circumstances of your life. Um, if you read the, the prayer email, then you've heard about this. If not, um, Caleb and Kelly, Caleb is our elder and worship leader. They found out that they lost their baby. And uh, it happened on Friday, <clears throat> a Thursday night. Um, Thursday night, she had a lot of bleeding. And so um, Friday, she went to the doctor and found out. And Kayla was actually at work uh, when she called and, and told him. And, um, and it was amazing to hear the response. I talked with him. And, and uh, you know, I was asking Kayla, I was like, Just, how's it going? How's Kelly doing? And he said, you know, it's amazing. She, she calls me on the phone and she says, you know, I'm there at work. And she says, you know, we knew this was a possibility um, last night when I started bleeding. Right? I, I, we knew that this could happen. But we're trusting in God's purposes. God has a reason for this. And I know it's hard and I know it's crazy. But, but God is going to use this to make us more effective ministers because we can now comfort with the comfort that we've received because we're trusting that Jesus is our compassionate shepherd. And I was floored by this. She's lost a baby. And that's her response. And uh, so then I asked Caleb, I was like, well, but how, how about you? I mean, I mean, I know this is early and it just kind of hits you all of a sudden, but I'm like, how are you doing? And he said, you know, actually my biggest concern right now is how are we going to tell Nella? 
so that she will not question the goodness of God. These are people that have hope. These are people that you know that are living this reality, that recognize that Jesus is their compassionate shepherd. This is not just concept. This is meant to hit every aspect of your life. There is no impossible circumstance. So whether you lose a child or you lose a job or it just seems like your life is set up one hard thing after the next, you are to take comfort in this because Jesus is your compassionate shepherd. Do you see Him as that? Are you trusting in Him? Are you looking to Him as your rest? Do you see Him, really see Him as the fulfillment of all God's promises and you recognize how much weight that ought to have on you in your daily life? Or are you looking only to your circumstances like the disciples? Only what is immediate, only what is seen, only what is tangible. You're looking to your your own ability to provide. Your own food, your own rest, your own money, your own possessions, whatever it is. Jesus is the Lord who gives rest. Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. And third, Jesus is the creator who provides. Look again, verses 41 through 44. It says, in taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So Jesus, he takes this, this bread, this fish, he he. he blesses it, he, he breaks it, he distributes it, gives it out to his disciples. And, and as they are passing this out through the crowd, the stuff never goes away. It just, it just keeps coming. They're, they just keep pulling this out. Like, like, I mean, how does that happen? You know, I'm like, a guy takes a loaf, right? There's four, right? But no, it just keeps coming over and over and over again until 5,000 plus, whether, again, whether that's 10,000 or 20,000 or 25,000. I mean, who knows how many people were actually there? 5,000 plus were fed. And not just they had enough to survive. I mean, John actually adds that they ate all that they wanted. They were full. They were completely satisfied. They were ready to pop off of some Ritz crackers and a couple of sardines. I mean, seriously. Could you imagine that? Jesus has taken this little boy's lunch and he's turned it into a banquet. A banquet for thousands. You know, many people question the possibility of such a miracle. The, the natural response is just to kind of say, okay, there's got to be some reasonable explanation for this I know this is what it is here it is this little boy was really kind and and he came up to Jesus kind of all naive here Jesus here's my food you can have it and then people see that and they're like oh that's so sweet little Bo Peep and then they they start giving out all the food that they have right you know and and pretty soon they everybody has enough food with them that everybody can eat and be satisfied I mean, that's, that's the natural explanation. And I'm thinking, okay, is that any more likely? I mean, really? Really? 
When you see a little boy come and give crackers and sardines, are you motivated to do the same? You might say, oh, that's sweet, but then you go and you eat your cheeseburger, right? You don't, No, you just don't do that. And even if that's the case, let's not forget that these people spontaneously decided to run out and meet Jesus in a wilderness place where there is no place to buy food. They're out in the wilderness, a desolate place, meaning nobody lives there, meaning you can't get bread there. You can't get fish there unless you're going to go fishing for it. And so that seems as, as equally absurd to me that 5,000 plus men just spontaneously get prepared to be unprepared. Right? Okay, you know what? I might run into a guy who might be the son of God. So before I leave today, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pack five loaves of bread and two small dried fish. And then that way I'll be ready to go. Right? And so there they are. And then Jesus happens along and then they take off running and they're like, sweet, I got food. No, that's not what happened. That's as equally as ridiculous. And that's not what Mark is conveying to us. We don't have the right to kind of strip it out or reinterpret it, you know, for our own good to, to, make, to make sense to us. I want to make sure that we're clear on this. Jesus is not a socialist, okay? Jesus is not some ethics teacher who's just out there to expound this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. Don't worry, I'll define that, okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism. What I'm talking about is this idea that... That there is a God, and He's a distant God. And we can know some stuff about Him, but He's still way out there, right? And He kind of tells us about what it means to live a good life and to be a good person. We, we understand moral values because of this distant God. And so, really, He's there if times get hard, if times get tough, and He's given us His moral example. And so what we really need to do is... is understand or just come to the realization of our own potential and pull up our, our, ourselves by our own bootstraps and then do good and, and, and then God will equip us when it's hard so that we can be good people. That's, that's basically what it is and unfortunately that's what you hear a lot of in churches these days. You can't pull from this text what you want. If Jesus isn't the Son of God and He didn't do the things that Mark and the other New Testament writers said that He did, then he's, this is all false. right? You can't just take some of it. You, you don't have the right to be like uh, Thomas Jefferson and just cut out the parts that you don't like and have your own Bible. Right? <laughs> we can't shy away from who Jesus really is because it demands a lot from us. And we can't tiptoe around these, these scientifically inexplicable events because people just don't like or are uncomfortable with the idea of supernatural. Right? This is tied intimately to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But so often, we'll, we'll simply teach that there is a God, that we need to live a certain way, and that when times are hard, this mysterious God will give you help in order to be good people. Have you heard of that sermon before? I know I have. The problem is we're forgetting who Jesus is. We're forgetting why He came. We're forgetting what it means to follow Him. We have to remember that Mark's intention here is to give a historical account of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's either all true or it's all a lie. Right? 
There's just there's no other way about it. You can either take it for what it truly is or you reject it as false. But Christianity is founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, not on this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. So if you reject Christ and his work, it is not Christianity. Or you redefine it, you manipulate it into Jesus is just a human being who happens to be kind of like Gandhi. That's not Christianity. It's a false religion. If you reject this supernatural account, then you reject the true Christ. Mark has written this account into the pages of history, an account that has been testified by many who have suffered and died for that truth. Would you die for something as foolish as going out and saying, hey, I know this guy that fed 5,000 people. Now kill me. You wouldn't do it. It's ridiculous. And we can't just dismiss this because it is impossible for man to do this. Absolutely it's impossible for man to do this. That is Mark's point. Man cannot do this. This is scientifically inexplicable for man. But not for God. Because those things that are impossible with with man are possible with God. This is what Mark is trying to tell us here. He's telling us that Jesus is the creator who provides. Right? This is this may be impossible if Jesus is a man, but he's not. He's God. He is the creator who created. He is the creator who creates. He is the God who provides, the God who is acting in history. But even more amazing than that is that we can't just look at this event as an isolated incident. Because what we see is that this event, this, this historical account of this interaction with Jesus actually points backwards, right? And it also points forward. Right? It points backwards to Moses and the bread from heaven, manna. We've already seen the echoes. The wilderness, the shepherd, the crowd, the new exodus, the complaining, the hunger, and the miraculous provision. Only it's clear from, from what Jesus does that He is greater than Moses. All right, Moses led the people under God's rule. He followed God around and He basically just told the people what God would do. God would be the one who would provide this manna and this quail. Jesus, however, provides it Himself. With Moses, each person is given this daily portion. It's just enough. Just enough to satisfy, but not really to fill. Not really to give you all that you wanted. But we see with Jesus, there is absolute satisfaction. That they did eat all that they want. And with Moses, he was commanded that they were to only take their daily portion and no more. There was no leftover. But with Jesus, we see that he provides the perfect amount for tomorrow. Twelve bags for twelve disciples. There's your rest. John tells us in his account in, in John 6, that when the people saw the sign, when people saw that he had fed this 5,000 people, what he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. 
Now they're referring back to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18, where, it, where God promises that he will raise up from the Israelites a prophet like Moses, who would speak the very words of God and will tell them to do all that God has commanded. These people see this in that moment and they recognize Jesus is that prophet. That prophet that we've been waiting for for so long. That prophet that is going to be like Moses. No greater than Moses. Here he is. This is him. And so what they want to do, they want to take him as their king by force because they're like, this is all we've been waiting for. And so they could see this. They could see that he is the fulfillment of God's promises from long ago. So this is more than a single miracle to be accepted or dismissed. This is a sign and a fulfillment of God's eternal promises to save his people through his suffering servant, through his prophet, through his son. But it not only points backwards to Moses, it actually points forward to the way in which Christ would prove himself to be the bread of life. We saw in, verses four, in verse 41 that Jesus took the bread, He blessed it, He broke it, and He gave it to His disciples. Does that sound like anything you might read a few chapters later in the book of Mark or in any of the other gospel accounts? It points to the Last Supper. Right? Where he does the exact same thing. On that night, we see that Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he would take a cup and he would say, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. This supper here in the wilderness points us towards another, a more miraculous provision that would truly satisfy our souls in the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're still not sure about it, you're still kind of hanging on it, I would encourage you to go and look at John's account in John chapter 6 of his feeding of the 5,000. You need to read the whole chapter because what you see is that Jesus feeds the 5,000, he dismisses them, he takes off, he walks on water, he goes to Capernaum, the people find out the next day that he's not there, so they go and find him, and then he gives his, his big spiel on him being the bread of life. He responds to them in John 6, 47-51, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The feeding of the 5,000 is a real sign to point the people towards their need for the bread of life. Through repenting of their sin and believing in Him, they might have eternal life. Friends, Jesus is the Creator that provides. Again, we're not speaking of abstraction here. He is the one who made you. That gave you life. You breathe right now because of Him. And because of who He is, because, because He's the Son of God, and because He made you, and because of His very nature, He owns you. Do you get that? If you create something, you own it. 
So He by every right owns you. He made you. He owns you. He sustains your life. But yet you have... He's also the one that you sinned against. That you have gladly and willfully rebelled against time and time and time again. And you have happily placed yourself under His just and holy wrath. You've done it willingly. You've done it longingly. You've carried out your desires. And yet He continues to sustain you. Continues to provide for you. Not just in giving you breath. Not just in giving you everything that you have. But ultimately, this Creator who owns you gave Himself as a sacrifice to pay for your sins. He owns you, but yet He bought all who would come to Him by repentance and faith, who see Him as a substitute, who are willing to follow Him, who recognize their desperate need for Him to be atoned for the sins that they have so gladly committed and want to follow after Him. They believe in His life. They believe in the accounts. They believe... Because of who He is. They believe in His resurrection. And they know that that is the hope, the guarantee, that they will be eternally restored to God. This is the Creator who provides all that. Not just life, but eternal life. So what's it going to take for you to believe? Well, you have to remove yourself as the judge over God and His Word. And you need to recognize that Jesus is the Lord who gives rest. You need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. You need to believe that Jesus is the Creator who provides. Let's pray together. Father, I I pray for our souls right now. God, I pray that this uh, this wouldn't just be something that we do because we think we're good people. But that you would open our eyes to see how much we need Christ. God, forgive us of the ways that we are, are blind to your provision, the ways that we fail to take rest in you and we look only to what is immediate, to only what is tangible, to only what is right around us. And And forgive us of how we just let the world kind of creep in and cause us to doubt and to question. God, I pray for for us that that we would truly recognize who Jesus is. Because that's what it takes for us to believe. Lord, help us, I pray. Through the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son. Amen.